0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, just like we like to do, we're going to jump right into things. So welcome to uh, our podcast, Ask an Angel. And today... Uh, we're with Mitan and Matana, just to jump right into it. Love you to share a little bit about yourself, your background, um, kind of where you are today, where you're going, and then one thing about you that no one would know.
1: Oh gosh. Um, so a little bit about me. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur and I come from a family of entrepreneurs, small business owners and the like. And I've always been around, you know people trying to build businesses. So it's kind of obvious for me to go into a career of venture capital if I if I was ever, ever able to pull it off, it seemed like a dream career for me. Uh, so I kind of built myself towards that goal very early on, started a couple of businesses when I was younger, always got involved in family businesses whenever I could I actually worked for my, from my family business since I was like 14 and, until I graduated from university. And, uh, my first job, my first real job, <laughs> after I graduated and came back from a year of traveling and let's call it spiritual uh, investigations, I landed an internship at a boutique Toronto venture capital firm, uh, unpaid internship. Um, did that for about four months and was fortunate enough to be hired full-time and did that for several years before quitting to start my own startup. Did that for a couple of years and joined Verstra Ventures uh, about a little over two years ago now. Uh, Verstra is a pretty unique venture capital group. We're very small, very, uh, very young, about three years old, or the venture capital initiative of a much larger publicly traded company called Constellation Software. And Constellation uh, is by, by many metrics, one of Canada's largest tech companies publicly traded. They're, they're um, business models to go around the world buying up uh, software businesses. So over the last few years, they've considered deploying capital in different ways. And one of those ways has been uh, venture capital, which is now Versa Ventures, or one of the ways is now Versa Ventures.
0: I love it. That's awesome. And I, and I believe um, in what you got the, your partner at uh, Versa Ventures um, and the gentleman's name is going to, oh. is it Carl? Yeah. Yeah. I think I met Carl a couple of years ago. So amazing. Very small world. Um, and one thing about you that no one would know.
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I keep the Sabbath maybe. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people know that, but I guess in the professional world, very few people know that, but uh, I keep the Sabbath, you know, Sunday, sorry, Friday sundown. I'm, I'm out. I'm not touching anything. And so su- Saturday, uh, Saturday night. And, uh, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite great. <laughs>
0: Actually, that's amazing. I think I might do that. I, I think it's a gate, great way to uh, get yourself out of the mix and uh, decompress and get back into the swing of things back on Saturday night or Sunday.
1: Yeah, I actually saw a few years ago, or maybe ten years ago, and something like that. I mean, there was a movement in the U.S. called a Day of Unplug, where they said just for like two hours or something in the evening on Friday or Saturday or something, completely secular thing. had nothing to do with religion and just stop using your phone. <laughs> and people that adopted this saw a tremendous improvement in a lot of things, including, you know, their ability to focus with friends and family and re-energize.
0: Oh, the re-energize and, and, and focus is huge. Um, I used to, and still do when I would travel, I would always say that I need to climb a mountain in order to get myself off of the phone so I can disconnect and actually participate in something where I can't be connected to, which is the same as my background and why I was actually climbing a mountain. But over the years, I just love climbing, but it does. It helps you refocus, re-energize. So all great things. And uh, my last travels was in Israel and I got to experience, um, I guess it would have been 18 months ago, uh, get to experience the Sabbath because again, you're used to Sundays kind of in North America that you don't really do anything, which is now more now than ever, but before every day of the week was busy. So being in Israel for uh, a couple of months was uh, pretty amazing. So I got to see that the startup community and learn about, uh, just a different way of lifestyle, which is shutting things down and, and not being so active. And I, and I think that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Well, what, what took you to Israel? Was it, was it the startup scene specifically
0: uh, every year? I actually uh, take four to six weeks and I travel. So I grab a backpack and I just bounce through countries. And this year I was in the middle East. So I was in, uh, uh, Egypt, Israel, and Jordan and, uh, at a couple spots in between, but through that, uh, while I was going around, I, I certainly want, I go and see startup scenes everywhere. So, uh, I've been in the startup scene all over the world. So I got to see some amazing startups and, um, one of our major centers is actually Israel. So we get a lot of uh, deal flow from Israel. They've massive, 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 amazing startup scene.
1: That's great. That's great. I, I hope you enjoyed your time there. It sounds like you did.
0: <laughs> oh, totally. It, to me, Israel in certain pockets is like Toronto was uh, probably 15 years ago. In a massive rebuild, everything's kind of going through this new design, new architecture, new look, which is kind of what Toronto went through. So kind of Toronto's on that middle ground of that change, I guess, but very similar in that that instance. So in Tel Aviv, that is the other cities aren't really going through that type of uh, change, but Tel Aviv certainly is. And it's pretty much the epicenter of Israel, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the commercial center. I mean, if you go to, I spent about a year living in the old city of Jerusalem. I think they have like a zoning bylaws there that you, you can only build buildings with a certain stone. Yeah it's probably not going to change for a long time, but it's a whole, it's amazing. You can go to like Tel Aviv, which is a completely different culture than Jerusalem and really the same country. And they live in harmony. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing.
0: Oh, agree. Jerusalem was uh, very orthodox, very more calm, less crazy buildings, less anything, just everything is very well nicely built. Um, really impressive. And then Tel Aviv is active, um, totally different scenes. Everybody's having fun. People walk around playing guitars. Like it, it literally is completely different, but it's, uh, they're both amazing for uh, culture. So
1: yeah, I don't know the first I hear. I, me- I remember the first time I went after I moved, I, I was born in Israel. Um, and went a couple of ba- a couple of times with family when I was younger, but the first time I went as like a, let's call it a cognizant adult. I was 18. So not really an adult, but legally an adult. I remember going to the beaches in Tel Aviv and it was such a culture suck. You see, People with like rifles and bikinis. Like you have people in bikinis. <laughs> it's an amazing scene. It's <laughs>
0: yeah, that is. Uh, I I noticed that a lot too. Taking buses and trains and and it is uh, a little bit different uh, to see that. Uh, Philippines has the same. Everybody walks wow. around with uh, army. Well, army fatigue and AKs and like a lot of different views, but uh, very similar, I guess. Um, but at the same time, it's it still. Uh, it feels pretty safe, pretty normal, pretty exciting. Uh, people are very active getting out there. And like I said, I met with so many startups and it was the, the energy and the ideas. It, it kind of felt like Israel's startup scene is like, uh, NASA, everybody is working on some real deep high tech, uh, adventure compared to most of the places I've been. So, I'm going to guess due to some of the military and due to other aspects, but there, a lot of stuff was really cool. Like, um, building a, uh, land Rover, not every startup's getting into that or even thinking about it. So there was some really cool tech that was coming out of it. So it was exciting to be there.
1: Cool.
0: So one of the areas I kind of want to steer back to, and, and I think you, you touched on a little bit about your entrepreneurial background, kind of when you were younger working in the family business and then, driving into uh, your own, um, entrepreneurial experiences and then the VC world. But one thing that I found fascinating is that one, you have a crossover. So you have been an entrepreneur, you've worked in the entrepreneurial space and you've been a VC and you've basically been a VC. I'd probably say longer than you've been an entrepreneur. And what I love about this, because most uh, people that jump into this space, they were either all in on entrepreneurship or they were all in on VC, and very few have that crossroad. So there's a lot of learnings that you can bring into both aspects. So maybe you can touch on a little bit of when you started off on the VC side, what really got you into the VC world? What was that reason you chose to go in that direction? And was it because of the schooling, the finance that you wanted to be in this space? But what was that kind of driver because i think it's really fascinating there's a lot of people out there today young people that are going in this it's like one of the fastest spaces right now for university students to graduate and go into vc uh, programs because they want to learn about this what was that driving force for you 10 years ago to get you into the vc world
1: Um, the reason i got into the venture world let's say there's a few reasons i'd say at the outset you know you're an entrepreneur you think okay I like being involved in a single company, but wouldn't it be much better to be involved in 10 companies at the same time? You know? So I would say that would be the very mature perspective that I, that I once had that, you know, I I always wanted to be involved in many things at the same time, just my entrepreneurial nature. You get bored after, you know, six months doing the same thing. You want to kind of always be involved in something new. Um, I'd say as I've developed more experience, there's two main reasons that I'm in the VC game. One is, it's, it's an amazing career to be able to, it's your job. It's my job to essentially meet the next billion, the next founders of let's call it hundred million dollar or billion dollar companies. That's my job. So I have to find incredible people before other people find them. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing. Like it's, it's I'm forced to kind of find amazing people and partner with them and give them money to like build their vision. I, I don't think you get that with almost anything else. Like what other career can you can you have that experience dealing with such with such people? I think on the the other front of it, aside from my interest in building companies, is more abstract. You know, I, I've I've learned about Malthusian economics. I'm not going to get into it here, but essentially there's without technology and without investing and in developing technology, there's there's kind of a, a limit to what human beings can can achieve. You know, if we have our population is growing exponentially, but our resources growing arithmetically and capping at a certain point, the only way to continue to allow human beings to flourish is with the continuous development of technology. And so long as we do that, we can have more people, people can live much better lives, healthier lives, can have access to food, have much higher quality of living. And um, I think a lot of the progress humanity has made over the last couple hundred years was due to technological development. And at some point there was someone investing in that <laughs> and more in a, in a philosophical sense, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of, you know, I don't want to be cliche, but actually, you know, and I'm not going to say, it. I want to be part of that. <laughs> well, I was going to say, cause I saw Silicon Valley before, making the world a better place. is like one of these cliches that investors say. So I'm going to avoid that.
0: Well, that's good. And, and what I like to both- What you shared there is that this wasn't something that you just tripped on or decided that, uh, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to be a VC. It sounds like you've been planning this for a long time. You, You saw what it was to take, what it took to do this. And you started to work your career, your education, to be able to step into this and make this something you wanted to do as a lifetime and uh, for a lifetime. And I I commend you for that. Um, my brain thinks the exact same way. So I'm excited that uh, we both kind of have that same vision and direction. Um, I always tell people that I don't want the biggest yacht in the ocean. I want to have a million small boats because those boats can keep building themselves up and growing and moving. And that to me is more exciting the fleet and being able to work with a lot of great people. Uh, you learn a lot more. And if we all have ADHD, well, this is one way to solve that. You're always going to be able to bounce around and continue to help and, and, and make that work and grow. So kind of, as you've been, I guess, working your way through this environment, there's some, we'll call it VC fallacies for startups. And I'll always hear this. And and I'd love to learn more about how you see this working and kind of what that process looks like for early stage companies. So I'm a new company, I'm looking for funding and I'm out pitching VCs. So can you kind of break through what you see as the right way to do this and when should be a VC be involved? Um, and how does that process work for you guys?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of, Mistakes I will say founders make when they go out to raise money and it's expected, especially if they're, it's the first time doing it, you know, early stage companies are first time founders. You, you expect a lot of these mistakes and most people like me give a lot of grace. You know, a lot of goodwill is, is, is given out because we expect that these mistakes are being made. Um, let me start with this. There's a big misconception in the, in the amongst founders that VCs are like taking risks. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I, I'm not that kind of person. Most of the people I know that make investments in this space aren't, they, they don't look at risk in the, in the sense of we're just going to gamble our investors money on this company. That's not the way it works. Every investment we make, we want, we, we expect it to be successful and we want it to be successful and we're doing everything we can to mitigate the risk as much as possible. I would say the better understanding is that we have a risk adjusted way of looking at investments. Right. And, I think founders need to understand that if they're, if a founders comes to us and they're not willing to put their grandmother's life savings into their business, there's a problem. Now I'm not saying they should do that. I'm saying that they should be willing to do that because they're so confident that they've tied down all their risks, that they've thought through what they're doing. They're going to treat their investors' money in a in a sacred way. Like this is not just some nameless fund. It, these are people's money that you're you're taking and you're you're a steward of their capital now. And that's the way I look at it. I always look at any investment we do as if it's my personal money, my life savings, or the life savings of people I really care about. And that gets you thinking in, in really strong terms of all the practical things you, you want to make sure the business has. So I, I would recommend any founder, when you go out and raise money, before you do that, go through that process. Pretend like you're asking your grandmother to put money in your business and all their life savings and see what you come up with. That's the first thing. There's many things like that. Right? like. <laughs> You know, I can give you a few more, like be prepared. Um, a lot of founders we meet are not quite prepared to to go through the process, and that that could take on a few forms. One, they don't have a, a data room set up with high quality information on their business. Um, their pitch has not been refined uh, sometimes in terms of content, design, delivery. Um, they, ha- they haven't thought through a lot of the issues like competition or market size, or if they've thought it through, they, there's a lot of holes in it which, you know, groups like yours or other accelerators or incubators or consultants could really help with. Uh, but that that's something we've noticed a lot that, you know, the, the early stage you go and the less experienced the founder, there's just a lot of gaps in how they approach investors. One thing they should know is that if the material isn't there, it's hard for us to make a decision. The goal should be to make it as easy as possible for us to make a decision because we get inundated with opportunities. And... I, you know, it's, it's a bit of a bias, but the companies with higher quality data, we tend to spend more time on because it's just easier. Right.
0: And is there, and maybe we'll take one little step back beforehand and maybe you can explain what a VC is and what a VC actually stands for, because I think there's some confusion with what an angel investor is, what a VC is, um, there's even ways to get social funding now, so maybe you can explain a little bit of that roadmap, and that'll kind of put into the context my next question.
1: Sure, uh, it's a great question. What, a VC, what is a VC versus an angel versus other ways to raise raise money? I would say a VC is any institutional investor or any investor that accepts money on behalf of other people in a formal way to make investments in early stage companies. Uh, that could take on a couple of forms. There's corporate venture capital, so venture firms that receive money from a corporation. Not necessarily, it could be through a fund or could be off their balance sheet, could be in a couple of ways. And then there's your typical you know, venture capital group that goes out into the world, raises money, they collect all that money in a fund, and from that fund, they make investments in startups. And the way they're compensated, essentially, is how much money they make for their investors. And if they don't make money for their investors, I guess they're not making much money. They're just making whatever their salaries are. I would say the difference between a venture capital firm and an angel investor is that an angel investor is investing on their own behalf. So they're not raising money from others They're not collecting a fund. It's more, they're just raising for their own account. I'd say that's the main difference. And and typically because of that, angel investors focus on earlier stage investments because the check sizes are usually much smaller. So they can only invest at the early stages.
0: That's a that's a great example, and I'm glad you uh, clarified that because it makes a big difference to um, an early stage founder on where and how they should be approaching this. So let's take you guys as an example. Um, you've you've kind of defined what types of mistakes are made, so the founder can kind of correct those. Now, when they do approach you, when is the right time? Should they be coming after they've already received investment, uh, pre revenue, post revenue? Is there a time that you like to focus on and say? not just me, but VCs in general. And then of course, on to you guys.
1: Right, so there's a couple of things to say when to explain when a company wants to go raise funds. The first thing is it's always good to build relationships. Uh, so there's no, there's no timeline that's good when you need to start building relationships with potential investors, whether they're investors potentially for today or for around in the future. The mistake I, I think a lot of founders make is that they don't approach the right people or they don't approach them in the right way. So you should be re- reaching out to investors that are likely to invest in your company or that fit their mandate. Like we invest in B2B, B2B startups, B2B software startups. If a company that's selling a consumer app comes to us, we're happy to speak with them, we're happy to offer them advice, but we're not going to be investors. Not now, not later. doesn't matter how successful they are. So when, when a founder is going out and raising money, they should at least look at our website and see what we invest in, right? For, for, so they save their own time, they don't have to waste time with on us, right? Uh, but in terms of when they should go out and start developing relationships, there's, there's, no, there's no real timeline, I think. Um, for us, it's my, my philosophy and some of the people I know in the space, it's our job to go find founders before they're ready to raise money so that when they're ready to raise, we're, we're there, we've seen how they've developed at the least over a year. Um, and that's usually the best way to make investments. Uh, but I would say if it's a more of an acute question. Um, they need to raise money. When should they start? You should leave yourself six months from, from start to finish. I would say that that would be a good, if, you're, if everything is lined up, you have all your information ready, you're hitting the pavement, meeting people, it would take about six months from an initial meeting to to really close a deal. Maybe sooner if you're lucky, but.
0: Well, I like that. And and to iterate that it's, you know, I think a lot of startups may, because this is new to them, they're not always focused on the relationship side. So hundred percent work on that relationship side, put together the right data room, put together the right information, um, ensure that you've done a lot of the work so that it's more, visible and easier to uh, decompress that as, as a VC taking it in and they can maneuver through the environment quicker, faster to learn about you. But again, you're building a relationship. So it's kind of like a drip campaign. You want to give them a little bit, uh, feed it in, get them interested and build that up. Um, And then I liked what you said about the right people, because that also ties into that relationship side is that it's not really valuable to you to create a relationship with, the wrong person that's not going to be able to do much or help you so you might as well actually start right at the beginning and go after the person that is investing in the space that you're in they get it they understand the competitors a little bit easier so whatever that de-risking mode is but I like the fact that you're kind of steering them really early on to say, Hey, you know what, build a relationship, go out and find the right people. It takes six months to close a deal, but maybe it might take you longer, but that's fine because they might not come in for the first two years anyways, because you got to build that up. So I think that's all super valuable insights and to kind of keep on that same context is one of the other things that is really important of what you talked about, which was the due diligence and the deep dive information. Can you give us an idea? And again, this is purely from a VC perspective and the fact that you spent your time in this environment and school and into this, you're like massive professional in this area versus an angel investor who has some ideas of what they're looking for. It's early, but they, they always say there's not a lot of data. I'm going to kind of take the reverse of that and say there's a ton of data. And from a, a VC perspective, what things do you look for and list off five, 10, whatever you think fits best, but what do you really got to see and what things can you push a startup to say, you know what, don't even bother coming to me. If I don't see this and I'm going to be harsh, but what are those things that really stand out to make a difference?
1: It's a great question because due diligence is such a subjective thing. But I think there are some through lines that I've experienced myself working with different people, different firms, and uh, you know, co investing with others. I, I would say a few things. One, there needs to be confidence in the team. And this has multiple, call it multiple points. We're investing in a team, especially in the early stages. Most people are investing only in the team. And we need to have confidence that you're going to deliver, you're honest and transparent you're treating us with, you're treating the the capital in a respectful way. So again, I can go into more detail what what I mean specifically by these, but we need to have confidence in the team. Sometimes that includes having reference checks. It includes, you know, getting uh, information in a timely way and in a, in a clear way. Uh, One thing I really is a red flag for us is when there's, when we feel like information is being obfuscated. When the the founder's not being forthcoming with questions. I remember on a couple of calls, I I would ask you, what's your, what's your revenues today? And the founder goes into a five minute dissertation on, you know, how their projections are true. And I would have to ask again, okay, but what's your, what's your revenues today? And then they would answer something completely different, right? Why they think that uh, customers really like their product okay, but what are your revenues today, <laughs> right? So, so that's the team. And then because most investors aren't gonna be an expert in the, in the technology and that, that would include us, we, we're, we're experts in building and selling software, but we don't go into detail in technical due diligence. It's not what we do. So what we need to, what we need to establish is that your product works, customers like it, and you can deliver. You can deliver on sales, you can deliver on your, your contracts, et cetera. And that usually comes in the form of some traction and customer references. So we'd like to see, let's call it a few hundred thousand dollars in recurring revenues from your main target market, at least so that we can establish that you can do all those things. The product works, they, your customers like it and that you can deliver. Um, aside from that, there's typical um, standard, standard due diligence stuff like looking at competition, looking at the market size, which is important. and we want to have a deal that makes sense as well so the deal process and negotiating a term sheet is very important as well
0: i like that and there's one thing that well there's a couple things that really stand out about what you just shared and one of them is you can deliver can you dive into that one because it's really dear to my heart but what do you mean by you can deliver
1: so this uh, this can take many forms what when i say can a entrepreneur deliver there's a few ways that, that kind of takes hold in reality. One is, you know, can you deliver sales? You got a contract signed number one, to get a contract and you go out there and, and sell and two, you need to deliver the contract. You need to deliver what you said you're going to do. And those aren't trivial, trivial things. Sometimes we have founders coming to us and say, well, we need the funding to go get sales. Right. And that's just, in most cases, not a very good answer right? You have to show some grit, some determination, some creativity in, in getting those sales in a cost-effective way. Um, another way of delivering is, are you, I'll give you an example. Like we, we've dealt with entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we've talked to them over a year before we make an investment, let's say, and we're getting updates regularly, right? So we see over time, how they, what their projections were, what they said they were going to accomplish. And then we see what happens in a year. So delivering is not just can you say what you're going to do, but what kind of goals are you setting out for yourself? Some some entrepreneurs um, make very unrealistic expectations and projections, and that's also a red flag, no matter how justified they think it is. We prefer entrepreneurs that are very realistic about their goals. There's those goals are based in reality. And that even if they're not hitting their goals, they're getting, they're getting close. There's a reason why they haven't hit it. Uh, Not just that they've assumed they're going to get to a billion dollars in two months. Right. There has to be something real behind what they set out and what they've achieved or, or the lack thereof.
0: So in that same context, and and those are great. I I like the idea, I like the concept around, you know, proving, going out to market, selling, documenting it, prove that you're hitting your target market. Um, and I think one thing you, you, you really um, hit the home run on this one was when you're asking a question inside of a pitch in a debrief or anything you're doing, this goes to selling or anything you're doing, be direct, just get to the point, help the person understand quickly. You don't need to always be educating. It's not about how much smarter can I be and sharing out more data, but how can I be direct? How can I uh, move the needle forward and get people interested in what I'm, what I'm doing. And that comes from simplicity and, and being direct, I guess, um, to say that word one more time, because it is important. So you're delivering, you're being direct. Uh, you're going to really support that team. How does an early stage company deliver a great team? if they're early, how does that come about? Like, what should they do? Should they, um, I, I remember seeing this and hearing this in in some of your other, uh, interviews is it, you know, and you mentioned it taking grandmother's money and, and making sure that you're, you're driving this home. It's the perception of that, but how should the startup look at building a team? Because you're right. It's the most crucial part. And how do you get those great people to support that founder or founders?
1: You know, that, that's the uh, billion dollar question I would say, you know, how do you build a good team and then how do you project the, that it is a good team to the people you need to, to convince? It's a tough question. Uh, I think what you've done in the past is, is the first step. You have, you have to establish that you know that there's a reason that you're the right person to win this space. If there's no good narrative why you're the right person to uh, build this product and sell this product, it's hard to understand why we should bet on you. (laughs) Right? So typically we look for people that have been successful in some startup before, or have deep industry knowledge, or have some other success or education or expertise that they are leveraging now into this business. And, And that's typically the kind of like, there's a myth that people invest in people right out of college for the next Facebook. That probably happens, but not, not that often, you know, we're investing in seasoned people that are building products because they have a deep understanding of their industry and their customer base, right? And those people understand how to build those products because they, they're they living it, right? Those, those are the types of people we like to see. And then there's a good narrative around why they're the right person to actually build this, this company. So that's the first thing is their, history, their past, what they've what they've accomplished before. But also it's what they're doing with this business today. And I, I wouldn't overlook how something like sales or uh, capital efficiency, you know how much money it's taking them to get to where they are. That, that's a very important uh, data point for us. Or how, the kind of people they're able to convince what kind of salaries they're paying them, what kind of options they're giving them. There, there's a lot of ways to kind of a, to assess from a, I wouldn't call them an objective point of view, but there's a lot of data points that we collect uh, in a subjective way to determine, are these the right founders? Is this the right team? And one of those, uh, I'll give you a quick example. If you have a founder that, you know, was able to convince a couple of people to join them as co-founders, or they've been able to get very high quality talent with little money by, by selling them on the vision or offering them shares or something like that. It, 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 it screams um, a sophisticated person that is able to establish a vision to people that are talented. And that's what we want to see.
0: I love that, that's a, that's a great way of doing it. It, it is uh, looking at the, pa- the backgrounds of the co-founders and of other people that are currently on the team that you can see and be thinking to yourself, wow, that person just came from their MBA working at uh, as a business analyst, probably making a hundred thousand. They've taken a pay cut to be here. This is impressive. What did they do that I'm not seeing? So it gives you a reason to, to dig in. And I think that's very valuable. And I think a lot of founders probably don't look at it that way, but, in the world of hustle and trying to come up with the best program, there are people out there that want to follow your dream and follow your vision because they see that as being a, a problem that they want to solve and be part of and be part of that bigger vision. Even if it's earlier on, uh, when it is more of that hustle and grind to get, uh, get clients.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's why capital efficiency is an important metric for us. Um, what, what does the founder accomplish or founders accomplish with little money or with, with the money that they've received? Can they build a nice, a good team? Can they go out and get sales? Can they build a good product? If you can do that in a, in a way that's not spending millions and millions or tens of millions, that's a great data point that, that screams, that tells us that you're a good founder. You're good. You're someone we want to invest in and do business with.
0: I like that. That's uh, that's fantastic. Um, Okay. Now to to kind of take it a little bit step further in in this, and they've, now they've engaged you, they've got everything working and you're getting into this real deep due diligence. How much of your background as an entrepreneur comes into the effect now? How much of that balance between, okay, I can understand that mistake versus I got to take my VC hat off now and maybe on the VC side, you gotta be really, uh, really tough, and stringent on the process of the policies, how much of that entrepreneur hat comes in, and you kind of can see where they're coming from, and you have that emotional quotient that you're filling for the entrepreneur, how much balance do you see between the two, and your background coming into this, when you're analyzing a company? That's
1: a fantastic question. In terms of how much my entrepreneurial experience plays into our due diligence, If I was being honest, I would say probably 10%. (laughs) You know, I don't think there's a number out there, but there's a reason for that. I think that where it adds value is perhaps my BS meter. You know, I think I have a much, a little bit more of a refined BS meter because I've done some of the things that they're trying to do. And not that I've done it particularly successfully or at the scale that they're looking to do it in. So I'm not going to overplay that. But the fact that, I've been involved in many companies before as an investor or personally, I just, when something doesn't smell right, I can generally pick it out. Not always, but I've done it before. I've been able to say early on in the process and been proven right a couple of times where say, this doesn't make sense. There's something missing here. They're either being not, they're not being transparent or honest, or there is a bigger problem. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been right a couple of times when it, when it comes to that. And I think that that's the combination of my experience as an entrepreneur and and the fact that I've, you know, invested in several companies in the past.
0: And that makes sense. And, and I'm glad that there is a percentage that you use, because if you were like, no, I'm hundred percent VC, I don't even wear the entrepreneur hat anymore. It, it may be, it's tough to relate in that sense, but it also can't be 50%. Because then you're not swinging in the right way where it is understanding the numbers and the factual data that's proofing where this company's going. So I think that's probably a fair balance for how you're, you're looking at a startup from an entrepreneurial eyes, eyes perspective, but also from a VC. Um, and that's interesting to, to learn and understand because I'm sure a lot of VCs who have never been angels when you're looking at it purely at a hundred percent VC, you don't actually get to see what a market is. You're so, kind of structured in this bubble that you may not get that outside experience. And maybe you lose a few opportunities because you couldn't see where they were coming from. And that entrepreneur has actually, you know, got something great here, but you're kind of stuck in this box. So you may lose great opportunities at the same time.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, at the risk of, saying something that'll get fired from. (laughs) You know, I, I I do think that a lot of what we do as venture capitalists is just common sense. I I don't think there's a particular skill set or education, maybe on the finance side, a little bit, uh, you can learn, but you can learn that stuff pretty quickly. If you're, you know, try hard enough. Um, this is common sense stuff. You know, again, if you're going to put in your own money, you're going to ask the same questions we ask, I guess it's just a matter of seeing enough businesses and being involved enough deals that Gives you that extra experience, right? But I don't think there's anything we do as VCs that is so sophisticated or complicated.
0: Uh, Wholeheartedly agree. I do think that there is an element of learning because you're part of multiple companies, you can really take that educational piece. And I think that really brings a lot of value to a VC is that the more companies you work with, the more companies you invest in board seats, advisor, observer roles, all of these things play into understanding different verticals, understanding different ways to compete, different ways to market. And I think that really builds up the credibility, not only on your side, uh, but as the firm, and it helps you better position yourself on when you are going after opportunities. you know, one day we'll go back and look at it and say how successful were our, our choices and how well did we play and which ones did we miss on and how well did they grow? And maybe there's a fine balance to come back and say that, you know, we're batting 50% and that's pretty significant. And that's a, a great position to be as a VC.
1: That, that's, that's exactly right. So if, if I were in a job interview, for example, yeah, if I was in a job interview, for example, I wouldn't play up my education or something. I would play up my experience because that that's at the end of the day, what matters it's, the fact that I've been involved in dozens of deals and seen how how it how it goes when you think the best company you're investing in goes to zero and the one of the ones you're kind of worried about go to hundred, you know, it's it's that experience being in the trenches with the entrepreneurs, seeing how things play out. That, that's what makes me a bit cynical today. <laughs> you know, when I, someone gives me a projection, I just you know, I I kind of I know where it's going. I know never, never, does it, never are the projections true. They could sometimes in one in a hundred cases be better than the projections, but they're never, they're never true, <laughs> you know? Um, so if I were ever, t- if I were to ever um, explain what makes, let's say versatile good at what we do or why I, I guess I'm still employed in the, in the venture world, it's probably because of my experience and not because of the, the education, the, the raw education on what, how to do a financial model or something.
0: Yeah, you, for sure. You were able to keep layering on top of that, right? You learn a base and then you just keep layering on. And the faster you move and the more you take in the the better you're going to be at picking winners. And uh, you know, that might not be uh, proven until maybe 20 years in this, but you'll prove a lot of great winners into that time period, but you're only refining your skill sets and your experience in getting better. So I think that's uh, incredible and amazing to, to learn about. So, We're going to kind of shift a little bit in a second here, but I wanted to, uh, before I ask you this one more entrepreneurial heartfelt question, I've got uh, one kind of thing that is what, maybe it's five things or three things you can just ramble off that startups should look for and make sure that they do when they're pitching pitching a VC or an angel that they want to make sure they nail anything that you can come to think of mind that just says, you know what, they have to have this. If they don't, don't even pitch, you're going to, you're going to waste your time.
1: You mean in terms of the raw characteristics of the business or the pitch itself? Uh,
0: More of the raw business stuff, the things that just kind of snap out that you want to see, like you need to know what the burn rate is. You need to know how much money they've spent uh, Mm -hmm. over the last, however long, you need to know the revenues. I don't want to answer all your questions, but you know what I mean? Like (laughs) that kind of idea, right?
1: You have to tell, you have to be solving a problem that's the first thing. If you're not solving a problem that's acute that you can measure in some way, what are you doing? Right? <laughs> and I, I, think it, uh, you know, goes over a lot of people's heads. Most, most founders that are, have have a good product have thought that through, but have a problem that you're solving, know the problem, be able to explain it very well and be able to measure it in some way. And so it's very, not easy to do, but be able to measure it in some way. And the other thing is that you should probably know who you're selling to. And this is tied to the problem, but some people, um, some founders haven't figured out what exactly their market is, who their target market is and what that looks like in terms of numbers. And everyone should forget who are you selling this to? Who's your ideal customer? And, and third is that you, you have to have a team that at least, um, whether it's co-founders or call it, you know, first hires, whatever that may be, a team that's well-rounded, so we shouldn't have to ask the question, okay, you're going to build this sophisticated technology, but who on your team is going to do it? It should be obvious. It should be part of your pitch. It should, you should have already thought of it. It should be on your roadmap or should you, you already brought them in as co-founders or, or as high as.
0: I love it. Best number one answer, make sure you're solving a problem, be able to measure it and then have an obvious team. That's going to be able to solve this problem so that you guys can get behind it. So perfect. Love that. Um, all right. So, Now we're going to kind of, and these are all great answers. I think very educational. I think we're going to, lots of people are going to learn a lot about how a VC works and the mindset of a VC. Uh, Now in all the time that you've been doing this, you've come across lots of different entrepreneurs and and how they operate and function. So I'm kind of looking for this heartfelt story where you just were blown away by what this entrepreneur had to do in order to survive, win, grow, grow, and crush it. And it doesn't have to always be a crush it story, but we like energy and, and great stories. But is there a story that just pops in your mind that really just shows what it takes to be an entrepreneur? And, and, um, you know, it's just stuck by you and it made you kind of think, you know, that, wow, this is impressive.
1: It's an amazing question. And I, I want to give a, you know, I'm going to give an answer that's more recent because we've really, our societies went through some, some trauma recently. <laughs> so that really, at least the first months, March and April last year, we were kind of figuring out, okay, who are our, what's going to happen with our portfolio, what's going to happen with all the people working for the companies? You know, we're asking a lot of questions. And we were worried about one company in particular because they were in the hospitality space. Um, I'll, I'll name them. It's called Hire Staff. Um, and there's a, a young entrepreneur. She's very talented. Her name is Aropa Stein. And I was the most worried about that company because the industry itself was going to zero and we just invested in the company and we weren't sure what to do. And seeing how that company, its management team, its founder adapted to the situation has been incredible. I, (laughs) I was uh, quite, I was quite impressed. I mean, the burn rate was kept low. Uh, She was able to pivot. She was able to, hire staff during the time. She hasn't, didn't actually have to, to fire pitch. There was a couple of layoffs, but overall, uh, those are layoffs probably going to happen anyways. And we've actually increased headcount over, over the last year or so. And seeing how she's uh, really had this determination to get things done despite the challenges, cut her own salary, like she did whatever she had to do to, to make sure that the business survived, that the company kept moving forward with developing its product, getting customers, uh, I mean, it, it was an incredible story and, you know, we're still not not out of the woods yet, but uh, considering uh, what we've experienced, I, I really want to share that story.
0: I love that. and And you said something that's- that really, really stands out there and you, she cut her own salary. And what I love about that is that she did whatever she needed to do as being an entrepreneur. And that's the type of entrepreneur that gives me goosebumps. I literally have goosebumps <laughs> because those are the people that, see that this is their business. This is their call it their baby, but they're doing whatever it takes to win and winning sometimes is having to, uh, cut your salary, put more time in work, more efficiently, more hours, ask for help, reach out to more people. So I love that. I think that's a a fantastic story and it really does resonate that, you know, it takes a lot to be an entrepreneur. This isn't a a cakewalk and people aren't just flashing money all over the place it really is uh, uh, um, a grind and you got to do the right things to survive.
1: 100%. And one of the ways I, I kind of felt that she would be this kind of entrepreneur was that she was very careful in how she spent the money she's raised in the past. Not that they've raised a lot of money in the past, but they were very careful with their budget and how they approach sales and product development and all those other things so that, you know, in a crisis situation that they're going to respect pure capital, that they're going to treat it right. And they're going to do whatever they can to ensure that the business uh, has the best chance of doing well.
0: I love it. Fantastic story. And I'm glad to hear hires doing well. I actually had it on my list because I wanted to ask the question, but I've never actually in a podcast interview, been able to get myself to ask about a company that is being invested into, but because of uh, um, I guess all the things I know about the company and thought it was pretty awesome company. I just wanted to know, and I'm glad you brought that up. So fantastic. Um, So we're going to kind of jump right into these rapid fire questions and uh, if you're ready, we'll jump right into them. Yeah. All right. Uh, First question. Number one, how did you get started investing in startups?
1: Through my father's business. Uh, I got involved during the summer at university, one summer in university in his business. And we uh, acquired a, he acquired his first company and I was deeply involved in that process. And it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life, learning how to make investments and integrating companies and, you know, the, all the challenges that come along with that.
0: That's amazing. Nobody gets that kind of experience, man. You're getting an M and a work in a university. That's brilliant. I was very fortunate that
1: way. Yeah.
0: Ah, very cool. That's awesome. Very exciting. Uh, what's your favorite part of investing the people
1: yeah, we meet some of the most incredible people.
0: <laughs> Great answer. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Four to six. Love it. Any verticals you like to focus on?
1: Uh, I particularly like prop tech. Uh, that's my own bias, <laughs> but uh, we like any company that is vertically focused. We, that, that's our specialty. We only invest in B2B software companies that are focused on, that are zealots when it comes to their industry. That's the way I like to put it. They're, they're so zealous when it comes to getting that particular customer base.
0: I love PropTech. tech. I've got PropTech tech for you. We're going to talk about that offline, but I'm a huge fan of prop tech myself. Big fan. Love it. Uh, on the, and we talked about a, a, some of these before, but just to put some more emphasis on them um, on the due diligence requirements, is there anything that you look for and how long does it take you to do your due diligence before making an investment?
1: So we look for all the things. <laughs> we, we turn the business upside down as much as we can. We want to address all the questions that we think are appropriate from product to team to tech to competition market. Um, we, we go pretty detailed, you know, because uh, when we go to our investment community, they ask the tough questions. And if we're not prepared, we get a no. And that's months of work gone down the drain. Uh, and it takes us about, um, about a month to do proper due diligence, I would say, from A to Z.
0: Perfect. Uh, outside of your, uh, your regular due diligence materials, like outside of team and things like that, is there any legalities that you look for and paperwork in that sense? Uh, do you want to make sure that the founder owns 90% of the company? Like, are there certain details around that that uh, you really look for because it makes a difference when you guys are making an investment?
1: I would say that, uh, there are certain things like we do want the, the founding team to have enough skin in the game. Um, but other than that, I don't think there's much, we don't have too many standards. We want to make sure that, you know, the, the corporation is clean and everything is done properly. But aside from that, we're pretty, pretty laid back.
0: Okay. I like the skin in the game part. It does make a big difference. Uh, do you guys yeah. lead rounds? Yes. Perfect. Do you reinvest and what percent?
1: We, we definitely want to reinvest in the companies that are doing well. We haven't had the chance to. Well, some of our companies are going to probably raise a series A later this year or early next year. And we look forward to, to doing that if, if we can. We're, we're definitely interested and we have the capital to do it. Awesome. Percentage, we're not, uh, you know, from, from in our point of view, a good investment is a good investment at $10 or 10 million. So whatever amount makes sense at the time.
0: Okay. Uh, Any terms that you prefer pref shares, common shares, Uh, are you fans of safes?
1: So we'll do almost anything except safe. (laughs) I'll say never. I'll never say never. And that we we would never do it, but it kind of makes the safe structure. doesn't make too much sense to me. It's neither debt nor equity and it doesn't offer too much protections for the investor, but otherwise we're happy to do any deal that makes sense. And it's somewhat of a negotiation. We obviously have some standards we want to see, but We just want to make a deal that's fair market and that works for both sides.
0: Perfect. And last question, do you take board seats?
1: Yes, actually it's one of the, it's not like we would never do a deal without a board seat, but it's one of the requirements our investment committee wants us to, to have before they approve a deal. Um, can it be? Can there be a situation later on if we're doing a, a small part of a much larger round? It's possible that we won't require it, but uh, you know, w- because of who our parent company is, we can bring a lot of value to the table, and we want to see that the other side considers us as bringing value. It may not be that we bring value to them, and that's just that that, that could be true, but. Um, if that's the case, then we probably shouldn't be investing. <laughs> so if the company doesn't see us adding value and we can't justify that we're adding value beyond the capital, uh, enough, at least to get a board seat, then it's probably not a good partnership anyways.
0: Perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, those, uh, those pretty much sum up our, uh, rapid fire questions. We're, uh, we're going to jump right into the personal questions. So yes. yes. All right. First question. What's your favorite sports team?
1: Oh, gosh. It was the Raptors up until yeah, a couple of years ago. <laughs> I said, after, let's say after they won the championship, it was the, Rap- it was the Raptors. And then last year, just stopped watching NBA. so,
0: yeah, the COVID really kind of changed the whole sports viewing feel, right?
1: You think it'd be the opposite, like more people would watch sports, but I actually noticed the opposite. But yeah.
0: Yeah, I kind of did the same. My uh, attention span for it kind of just dwindled down. I'm going to have to figure out how to pick it back up but uh, I mean, are fantastic.
1: The I, I just watch the highlights five minutes. You know, I get the same value out of watching the highlights and watching the entire game.
0: Well, hopefully that's not what it turns out to be that basketball is a five minute game now. And we're, uh, we're like, no, that's good. That's good. That's all I need. Right. Favorite movie. And what character would you play in the movie?
1: Oh goodness. I would have, you know, there's, I actually have a list of like my, my favorite movies somewhere, because I don't know why that's just <laughs> something I did at some point. Um, I have many favorite movies. I'd say one of the ones that comes to mind right away is, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It may be like, uh, a cliche, but, but I really love, love that trilogy. It's just so well made. It holds up to today's standards. I think the story is great. I think the novels are even better, but the fact that it was adapted into these, this amazing trilogy is quite amazing. Um, and in terms of the the character I would play, um, I want to be Aragorn, but I think I'd be the steward of Gondor probably, <laughs> you know, just like the guy that's already there and just, you know, doesn't want the king to come back. But, you know, I'll, I'll say I'll, I want to be Aragorn because he's, he's pretty cool.
0: Aragorn. I like it. I, I'm actually watching that movie tonight. I downloaded it. Yeah. Cause I have to use, uh, uh I, I don't have my Netflix, my, um, a uh, PS4 setup, so I have to actually uh, use my phone in the Google Box, and I actually downloaded from Apple. So I'm really going to watch that tonight. So fantastic movie! I completely agree with you. Um, have you seen it before? Oh, many times? But I'm a fan, so I get. To, I want to watch it again. You have to find a chunk of night where you got four hours because it's a pretty long <laughs> movie. Right, you're it's watching the movie.
1: extended. Right, you the extended version. Yeah. Okay, great, Yeah. That's that's the right way to do it.
0: Yeah, So because of that, you got to really find a lot of time. So, uh, but either way, uh, also a fan of that. Um, all right. Last question. What, what is your superpower?
1: What is my superpower? It's a fantastic question. I, I would say my, my superpower is the ability to, to learn. I, I traditionally historically, I don't think I I'll give you a small example. I don't think I would have considered myself an analytical person growing up but I, for whatever reason, because I knew it's something I need to develop a skill, I've trained myself to think like an analytical person. I still don't think I am, but I've trained myself over the years to think like one and always stop and ask myself, how would an analytical person think of this situation? And that's kind of how I hope, at least in certain situations that it, that it matters, that that's the way I, I act, but uh, it's, it's an act. <laughs> it's purely an act that I've developed over the years. So.
0: Well, that's a good skill to have. Uh, that's how this brain works. So I'm, uh, I'm like that, but you know what, if, uh, when you have, uh, and build those skills, that's what it's all about. Right? So challenge yourself and keep learning and growing. So fantastic. Well, But Tan, I want to say it's been a pleasure. It's been awesome. I always say I won't take notes, but I have to show it. This is my favorite part was I write like crazy. So you're wondering, what's the guy doing over there? I'm taking notes, but uh, old school in that sense. But I want to thank you very much for all your time. Uh, You shared a lot of very valuable insights into life and world of a VC uh, and kudos to you guys and the the success and the great companies that you guys are working with. Uh, like we like to do in our, our podcast is we want you to share the last word, anything you want to say to startups or to investors, I turn it over to you and thank you again for your time today.
1: Uh, First Jeff, uh, thank you so much for having me and hosting me. It's always a pleasure to, uh, talk about Versa and what we do. Um, my, my last word is like, (laughs) here's my last word. I've learned early on for one reason or another, I don't know, I was blessed really to have a lot of good mentors and people around me, uh, that there's something called goodwill. It's an accounting term that expresses value. That's not exactly tangible, right? There's goodwill also that exists between people. And almost every interaction you have with another person either creates more goodwill or creates a deficit of goodwill. And you go around life, meeting people and doing business and having relationships and, in the background somewhere in the, the netherworld exists this balance of goodwill that exists between you and every single person you've interacted with. And if your interaction with someone is positive and you either do something for them or they do something for you, or you have a, you you smile at them or you just treat them nicely, you increase that goodwill. And that is a real tan- that that is an intangible and very valuable thing to have in life. So much so that so much of whatever I can be considered successful for, Um, has come from, and I can trace it. I can actually trace it to the goodwill I've developed with people over the years. So if there's one message I want to give out to anybody that's watching this, it's think about life as the constant constant development of goodwill with other people, meaning that any interaction you have, try to make it a positive one. Um, even if someone's giving to you, let's say someone's doing you a favor, just thanking them and writing them, let's say, even a handwritten thank you card that can actually create a, restore some of the balance of goodwill, or at least being more open to doing them a favor in the future. Right. But every interaction or trying to find a way to do them a favor, right. Uh, always try to develop poz- a positive balance of goodwill, not only because in a pragmatic sense, it will benefit you very much so in the future, but because it'll make you live a better life. And uh, if we start thinking about our lives that way, it's like, How do I just make sure that even if I'm not, I'm the taker, so to speak, in this interaction, how do I make sure that, um, my balance of goodwill is at least balanced or that I increase my balance of goodwill.
0: Brilliant. I love it. And, uh, very well said, Uh, I I think the world can all uh, learn from that and share a little bit more and be a little bit more goodwill. And you know what? It, it, you're banking all the way along, but you know, keep giving it away, and, and sometimes it does come back. But don't look at that; just look at what you can give. So I love it, man. Well, well said. Um, thank you again very much for your time. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, thank you, Jeff.
0: Well, that was a, a great interview with Mattan. I really like the fact that he comes from both sides. You know, uh, entrepreneur VC really enthralled and and dived right into this VC world, wanted to be there from when he was younger. And I guess the best part about this is that he was able to share a a lot of um, real key information, which was, you know, how do we demystify when you should go and speak with a VC? And he blatantly shared right away. Anytime is good. Go out, create a relationship, start that conversation. It doesn't mean you have to pitch them today. You can be pitching them in a year from now but start getting those relationships, communicate, build that up, build your team up, find ways to bring in the right people to grow that business, uh, which is again, fantastic. Uh, Learn to steward your capital. Another great line. He said, that is important. You got to figure out how to balance your business and the best part of when he was talking about hire uh, what she did as a founder to really take control of her business. And just by cutting her own salary and doing the right things allowed her to make the business sustainable. And that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur. So I love that. It was a great conversation, great learning. And again, uh, thank you very much. Please like share comment. And we look forward to seeing you at the next uh, vendor podcast. Have a great day.